All right, well, tonight, we, it's the worst kept secret in the church. Tonight we begin a study in what many Christian professors, pastors, and theologians have called the greatest book ever written. Please turn to the book of Romans. You know, Martin Luther said of this book, let me quote him, the epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament. It can never be too much or too well read or studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes. John Calvin said, and I quote, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he, she, has an entrance open to him to the most hidden treasures of Scripture. F. Godet, the Swiss commentator, said, and I quote, Every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected with the teaching set forth in the book of Romans. The Reformation was certainly the work of the epistle to the Romans. It is probable that every great spiritual renovation, revival, in the church will always be linked both in cause and in effect to a deeper knowledge of this book, end quote. And guys, that was certainly true in the lives of many of God's people throughout the history of the church. For example, Augustine, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, considered by many to have been the greatest intellectual since Paul the Apostle, was described as a brilliant and attractive man. He was a teacher and a philosopher in the university in Milan, Italy. But before his conversion, God was at work on this man. He was bringing conviction. And um, Augustine felt the conviction very heavily. And uh, he was wrestling with the truthfulness of Christianity. You see, he was wrestling because he had an immoral, he was living an immoral life, basically, okay? Uh, as did many pagan intellectuals uh, of that day. Then something remarkable happened in, you know, God will pursue us. God will pursue us and pursue us as he did with Augustine. Augustine was wrestling, he was fighting, trying to maybe justify, trying to explain away. Because you know what? The flesh doesn't want to give up the sinful life. Then something remarkable happened in September of AD 386, September of AD 386, as Augustine sat weeping in the garden of a friend, contemplating the wickedness of his life, he heard a child singing a song he had never heard before. The child was singing Tole Lege, Tole Lege, which in Latin means take up and read, take up and read. Believing this to be a message from God, he ran to where a copy of the Bible was laying because nobody had Bibles like we do today. Uh, there was before the printing press. And so churches would have them chained to the pulpits. Nobody walked off with them. So he ran to the nearest place, probably a church somewhere, where they had a copy of the Bible laying there. He just opened it at random. And to his astonishment, he began to read these words. Let us behave decently as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desire of the sinful nature. Can you imagine? The Lord used this passage from Romans to bring Augustine to faith in Christ. Another man... You might have heard of him. Another man whose life was greatly impacted by the truths set forth in the book of Romans was a Catholic monk. His name, Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Luther wasn't a wicked profligate like Augustine. On the contrary, he was a pious and earnest monk. But like Augustine, he also had no peace in his soul. He wanted with all of his heart to please God and be accepted by him, but the harder he worked and the more he sacrificed, the further he felt removed from God. 
Now, instead of coming to love God, which Luther knew he should do, he found himself resenting and even hating God for requiring what Luther considered to be, and I'm quoting, an impossible standard, standard of righteousness for getting into heaven that no human being could ever keep, end quote. In desperation, Luther began studying the book of Romans. And as he did, he came almost immediately to verse 17 of chapter 1, where he found the answer to the dilemma that had been torturing his soul. The words he read were these. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from start to finish. Just as it is written, the righteous, in other words, the just, the saved, shall live by faith. And as those words he pondered, as the Lord began to then open the meaning of that verse up to him, Luther realized that the righteousness he needed to be right with God, to please the Lord, to get into heaven, was not a righteousness that God was asking him or commanding him to manufacture on his own. It was not based on his own good deeds and religious works. It was a righteousness that comes from God that only God can give, and he's given freely to anyone who would receive it purely by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so that gave rise to one of the great tenets or pillars of the Reformation, eventually, sola fide, only faith, not works of righteousness, which we have done, but only through faith are we saved. But here's how he put it. He said, and I quote, I had no love for that holy and just God who punished sinners. I was filled with secret anger against him. I hated him because, not content with frightening by the law and the miseries of life us wretched sinners already ruined by original sin, he still further increased our tortures by the gospel. But when by the Holy Spirit I understood the words when I learned how the justification of the sinner proceeds from the free mercy of our Lord through faith, well, then I felt born again like a new man. In very truth, this language of St. Paul was to me the true gate of paradise, end quote. Well, of course it was. He was finally released from the prison of the law into the glorious liberty of a genuine child of God, stepping from law the darkness of the prison of law into the light of God's gift of grace, uh, which he offers to all people who receive Jesus, right? The gift of salvation is a free gift. Well, two centuries later, John Wesley, who interestingly was an ordained minister in the Church of England, was also confused about the true meaning of the gospel. You see, Wesley found himself searching for a genuine experience of salvation. That was his problem. He didn't feel like a Christian. He was looking for an experience that would help him to feel like a Christian. And the devil will always nail you if you look to feelings for anything in the Christian life. It's all by faith and faith in God's word. All right? But he was wrestling. Now, it's interesting, a few months earlier, Wesley had written in his own journal, I went to America to, America to convert Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Here's a guy in ministry who wasn't even sure he was saved. In fact, he thought he wasn't. He didn't feel like a Christian. But then on Wednesday, May 24th, 1738, he attended a meeting, and later that evening he wrote this in his journal. He said, and I quote, I went very unwillingly to a society, a religious meeting, in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before 9 p.m., while he was describing the change which, which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It was the reading of really the word 
Luther's experience and the preface to uh, his commentary on, on Romans. Um, but it's, it's always the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And um, now you might be sitting there thinking, okay, great, wonderful. That's all well and fine. But I, I'm not an Augustine. I, I'm not a Luther. Uh, I, I'm not a Wesley. I'm not a great intellect like those men were. I mean, is there anything that I can learn? I mean, is this book so far above me that only the super intellectuals can really uh, be ben benefited from it? Um, how about that, right? Well, if you're thinking that, listen to what the great pastor, author, and preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse said regarding this book or any other book from God's Word. He said, and I quote, A scientist may say that mother's milk is the most perfect food known to man and may give you an analysis showing all of its chemical components, a list of the vitamins it contains, and an estimate of the calories in, in a given quantity. A baby will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content and will grow day by day smiling and thriving in its ignorance. So it is with the profound truths of the word of God, end quote. In other words, guys, you don't have to be a scholar or a great intellect to benefit from the principles and truths in God's word. But listen, you do have to be a student of it. You do have to be a student of it. Peter said, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. An anonymous poet wrote these moving words, I think, that capture beautifully the most of the book of Romans. It goes like this. O long and dark the stairs I trod, with trembling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp, and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, not noting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a footfall on the stair. On that same stair were I afraid, faltered and fell and laid dismayed. And lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. And folks, that describes what salvation is. It's not man ascending to God, climbing a stairway to heaven, built one step at a time through his good works and religious deeds. It's God coming down to where fallen man lay and lifting him up, her up, through faith in the completed work of his son, Jesus Christ. Who wrote this book? Well, I think Paul is universally accepted as the, as the author of Romans, although if you ever want to have a little trivia question for somebody, you ask them who wrote Romans, and they'll tell you, well, what do you mean? Well, Paul. No, actually, Tertius wrote Romans. Go check it out towards the end of the book. Paul dictated it. Tertius wrote it. Okay? Little trivia thing. All right? But Paul is universally accepted as the author of Romans, at least among evangelicals. Uh, Paul, of course, was originally named Saul after the first king of Israel. They were both from the tribe of Benjamin. But uh, he was born in Tarsus, a prosperous city located at the southeast corner of Asia Minor or modern Turkey. If you look at a map, you will see that it was right next to Syria, which is north of Israel. So right there, at the very corner of Asia Minor or modern Turkey, uh, was where um, Tarsus was located, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the province of Cilicia, right next to Galatia, another province in Asia Minor. And then Paul writes to the church of, of Galatia. He's not writing to a city, a church in a city. He's writing to the churches of that region, okay, saying uh, Cook County, okay, 
If you would, somebody said, I'm writing to Chicagoans, that'd be one thing. But Paul was writing to a larger demographic uh, oftentimes than just a single city here and there, which he did do. But um, guys, Tarsus was a center of Greek learning and culture, the home of one of the three most outstanding universities in the, the Roman Empire. So it was a very heady place, uh, intellectual uh, town, Tarsus was. Um, Saul probably received some of his training there. Uh, he was not just a master of Judaism, a scholar, a, a theologian, uh, but he also had a handle on Greek culture. Uh, that's, I think, was the, the way God uniquely put Saul together so that when he finally got saved, God called him to a ministry that, you know, to the Gentiles, basically, although he still ministered to his Jewish brethren, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, again, Tarsus was a center of Greek learning and culture. And uh, Saul possibly received some of his training there, uh, as well as in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel, thought to be one of the seven greatest rabbis in Israel's history, he was the grandson of Hillel, Hillel, who according to some was the most famous rabbi of them all. But Saul of Tarsus gained a reputation as a great intellect, a brilliant scholar, as well as being a passionate and devoted adherent to and champion of Judaism. He was learned in both Greek literature and philosophy, as well as in Jewish law and rabbinical tradition. He eventually became a Pharisee like his father. Of course, you know that the, the Pharisees uh, were a radical fundamentalist sect of Judaism that was jealous to that was zealous, I should say, to keep every aspect of the law down to the smallest detail. Saul's father had somehow gained his Roman citizenship. He wasn't born a Roman, Saul's dad. Uh, some believe he might have done some work for the emperor or a high-ranking official, and it pleased this person to the point where uh, they grant they got to work out where uh, where Saul's dad was granted Roman citizenship. Of course, that meant that if your father was a Roman citizen, then any children born would be born Roman citizens. And that's what happened with Saul. And uh, that came in handy a few times, saved him from a few whippings and things. Uh, not bad. I mean, there was perks. He, as a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal his case to Caesar, which he did. But earlier than that, after his conversion on the road to Damascus, recorded in Acts 9, uh, Saul, now renamed by the Lord Paul, uh, and commissioned by God and his apostle, as an apostle. Uh, he made three extensive missionary journeys throughout Asia Minor, including Galatia, which was a main territory, and then into Macedonia and Achaia, modern Greece. On his third missionary journey, he stayed three months in the house of Gaius. Um, and uh, it was in Corinth uh, that Gaius lived. So for three months, he stayed in Corinth at the house of Gaius, and it was there that Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans sometime in A.D. 57. He then gave the letter to Phoebe, a Christian lady from the church at Cancrea, a city near Corinth, and she actually carried it um, to Rome. By the time Paul wrote Romans, he was not a new believer. Uh, he had been a Christian preacher for almost 25 years. Now, just to establish the church at Rome remains a mystery. We know it wasn't established by Paul, because he tells us in chapter 1 that although he had wanted to visit Rome on numerous occasions, something always prevented him from doing so. Also, he makes it clear in chapter 15, verse 20, um, that, uh, that he was determined not to build on another man's foundation. In other words, Paul purposed not to instruct and lead a congregation that had been founded by another apostle or another Christian leader. And that's one of the reasons we know that Peter did not establish the church in Rome as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. There's a lot of reasons why we know Peter did not 
found the church in Rome. One of the big ones is if he had founded the church in Rome, Paul would never have gone there. He would have left it to Peter to preach and to disciple the believers there. Peter never mentions, it's never told in the book of Acts, that Peter was in Rome. Um, it's, it's, Peter never mentions the fact that he was in Rome. And when Paul, during his lengthy goodbye at the end of the, the epistle to the Romans, he mentions, I think, 25 different people, never mentions Peter once, or anybody Peter supposedly had led to Christ. Peter was not involved in the church of Rome. All right, we know that. Now, how did this church get started? Well, I think most commentators, most uh, scholars, believe it's possible that there had been a uh, that there had been Christians in Rome for many years. Say, so, well, how does that work? Remember now, by the time Paul writes this letter, twenty-five years has come and gone since his conversion. And, we, and many people believe that according to Acts 2, verse 10, when it talks about the, the day of Pentecost, right, when the church was born, it makes this statement that among all the people that were there in Jerusalem at that time, that visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, were also there. These would have been some of those who witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit, Right when the church was born, Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, they heard the apostles speak in their native dialects because pilgrims from all over the known world had come to Jerusalem for one of the main feasts of the year, Pentecost. And uh, they heard the mighty rushing, sound of mighty rushing wind, right? Um, but they saw no evidence. Nothing was being blown around. They, they were able to, to fix on where it was coming from. They ran to, uh, they were in Jerusalem, but ran to the place where the disciples were held up in, in an upper room somewhere, and uh, the Holy Spirit uh, came upon each of the disciples, 120 of them, uh, and they began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And later on, uh, it says how that all these pilgrims who were there said, how is it that we hear each of these men speaking, they were praising God, how do we hear each of them speaking in our own native dialect? It was a miracle. It was a miracle. And so they heard this. And then they listened to Peter's powerful first spirit-filled sermon of the church age. Powerful sermon. And we know that the Bible says that that day, 3,000 men plus women and young, young people got saved. So maybe 5,000 people. The church started big. Think of the nursery. Wow. <laughs> Pastor Frank, thank God you weren't there, boy. That's a big thing, you know? But, um, but they would have been among these pilgrims from Rome. Would have been among these. And we're speculating, but I think it's pretty accurate that, you know, they, they got saved. And then they went back to Rome. And they began to share what little they knew with friends and family. And a church was born. And these 3,000 that got saved, these 3,000 men then were baptized, verse 41 of Acts 2 tells us. But in any case, the church at Rome was made up of a group of dedicated, faithful believers who lived in a very strategic place, you might say, in the heart of the Roman Empire, the, the imperial city itself. Now, they were without the benefit of apostolic teaching. That's why Paul wanted to go there which tells us Peter was nowhere to be found. Uh, just Peter just wasn't involved in the founding uh, or the running of the church there in Rome. But Paul knew that, and Paul had, of course, had, he had a heart for believers no matter where they were. Uh, whether he led them to the Lord or they came to the Lord through some other means, Paul was a true shepherd, and a true shepherd doesn't just love the sheep in his own church. He loves God's sheep in general, and Paul was a true shepherd. And so he knew that there was a church there in Rome. He knew about it. But he knew it was without the benefit of apostolic teaching. And again, that was one of the main reasons he wanted to visit them, to preach the gospel to the lost, but to instruct and encourage the believers that were living there in Rome. But also, guys, and I think this is a totally valid point, uh, also, no doubt, Paul was thinking, if all roads lead to Rome, remember that? The Roman Empire purposely built roads 
all of which led to Rome. But Paul was thinking, is a true evangelist, if all roads lead to Rome, it also means that all roads lead from Rome. And I'm sure Paul was thinking, if I can just get to Rome and share the gospel, it will spread rapidly and reach the entire world. Now, Paul didn't actually get to Rome until three years after he wrote his epistle to the church there. And when he finally came to Rome, well, it was as a prisoner of the Roman government, not the way Paul wanted to come to try to encourage the believers there. However, Paul saw himself as an ambassador in chains as he wrote to the Ephesian church there from Rome. You can read about that statement in Ephesians chapter 1. But Paul saw himself as an ambassador in chains. Paul was the kind of guy, you couldn't stop him. He was a dynamo. He was the kind of guy, you give him lemons, he'd make lemonade. You throw him in prison, I'm an ambassador in chains. You can't stop a guy like that because he turns every situation into an opportunity or he sees every situation as an opportunity from the Lord to serve him. He didn't say, woe is me. This is the thanks I get for being a faithful servant of God. I'm done. No. I'm in prison here in Rome. I'm going to be an ambassador in chains. He made the best of the situation, leading many of the guards and servants in Caesar's palace to Christ. i got to have you turn to Philippians. Chapter 1, first of all. I love this. I want you to remember something. That during his imprisonment in Rome, Paul wrote four epistles known as the prison epistles. They consisted of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So remember, when you read Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or the little epistle of Philemon, Paul wrote those from prison in Rome. Here's what he said to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Because, you know, what are you in for, pal? You know, I've never spent any time behind bars. <laughs> I've spent time in prisons ministering to guys behind bars. But you get thrown into jail, the first thing somebody wants to ask, what are you in for? Well, I'm in, for, I'm in here because I represent Jesus. And I was preaching about the Lord, Je the Lord Jesus. Who's that? It's like he would share, just you know, share the gospel. And they see how happy he was, joyful. You know, you're in prison, you're railroaded, you, you're innocent, Paul, and yet you're happy, you're smiling, you're singing hymns at night. What's with you? Well, let me tell you, it's Jesus. So, you know, everybody knows that you know, you, the devil threw me into jail. It, it worked out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it, that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Hey, if Paul can handle it, I can handle it. I'm going to stop being a wimp for Jesus. I'm going to stop hiding out, be a closet Christian. I'm going to get out there. Hey, Paul has motivated me. He's inspired me. And doesn't it work like that? You know, somebody that's really bold for the Lord, you spend a little time around them and you're feeling, man, am I just a wimp? I want to be like them. If they can do it, why can't I be more bold for Jesus? Amen. Right? Now turn to Philippians chapter 4. As he is signing off, okay, verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This guy had a dynamic ministry in the palace dungeon. I mean, guards were always being chained to him, you know, on four hour, six hour shifts, right? Uh, four at a time. That was a captive audience. I mean, really? And a word got out to the staff, this guy 
Paul is a dynamo. You got to listen to this guy. He was preaching to the to the uh, the staff there in Caesar's palace, and people were getting saved all over the place. It's amazing. Now, guys, the theme of the book of Romans in every book of the New Testament has a theme. We're going to try to maybe um, capitalize on that in our next study on Sunday morning. We're almost done with John. And so I've been praying about some things, but it's going to focus on the theme of different books of the New Testament. And we'll talk about that more in detail later on. But the theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith. Let's put it in simple layman's terms. Where Paul is answering the question, how can a person be saved and get to heaven? Because that's really what justification is. So how are you justified? By faith. Um, Now we could say very simply in a childlike way, the book of Romans is all about how a person can be saved and get to heaven. Many have said that the book of Romans occupies a unique place in the New Testament canon of Scripture. You know, Romans has always stood at the head of Paul's letters, and rightly so. Since Acts ends with Paul's arrival in Rome, it makes sense to have the epistle. Uh, the, it makes sense to have the epistle section of the New Testament um, begin with the apostle's letter to the Roman church, uh, written to it before he had a chance uh, to visit the Christians living there. But I think more, even more decisively, Romans is the most important book theologically in the whole New Testament. I think being closer to a systematic presentation of doctrine and theology, uh, you're going to find anywhere else in the Bible. Which, by saying that, I'm saying it is a deeply doctrinal book. Not that it doesn't have any practical uh, sections in it. Uh, You're going to see it has one of the most, I think, incredible... Um, practical sections of Christian living of any epistle in the New Testament. But because the book is deeply doctrinal, the first eight chapters especially, a lot of Christians kind of shy away from the book of Romans. In their minds, it's just too deep. It's too heady. I I don't get anything out of it. Well, that's a tragedy. Uh, That's a tragedy. Um, We need doctrine. Christian living flows from Christian learning. Before you can do the deeds of a Christian, you must have the doctrine of a Christian. All right, just quickly. The outline of the book of Romans is as follows. And and, and you can go online and you can get some very uh, uh, deep outlines. I've tried to keep this as simple as possible. And we'll explain every section in detail once we get there. Uh, But first of all, the outline of the book of Romans is as follows. The introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Next you have a section we've titled, or people who have studied the book for many years have titled, Condemnation. Condemnation. The whole world, in this section Paul proves, the whole world apart from Christ is lost and needs God's righteousness for salvation. That covers chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. The next section is called justification. In other words, how a person acquires God's righteousness, right? The whole world apart from Christ needs the righteousness of God for salvation. That's condemnation. Everyone is condemned apart from Christ, right? Justification, well, how does a person acquire God's righteousness? That covers chapters 15. Chapters 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21. Next section, sanctification. How a person lives a righteous life for God once they're saved. That covers chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 39. Then you have a section that a lot of commentators kind of write off. Um, They don't really know what to do with it. They say it's it's a... um, kind of a, a, par- a, a parenthetical section, almost like it has nothing to do with the book itself. Uh, many actually said Paul drifted. He kind of lost focus. And, and, amazing. What? My goodness. 
You're talking about the word of God. The man drifted, got off the subject, rambled for a few chapters, then what? Holy Spirit nudged him back on, on, on track? Oh, my goodness. Restoration. Chapters 9, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 36. What is this? Listen. Using Israel as an example of God's righteousness and calling, how God called them for a specific time. He calls us for ministry. But this, this section is all about using Israel as an example of God's righteousness and calling being permanent, irrevocable. When we get to that section, we're going to see that salvation, if a person truly has it, they have it forever. Oh, but what if they backslide? Well, they're going to backslide once in a while. Very few Christians never backslide. The idea is, were you saved by grace or were you saved by works? And if you were saved by works and you backslide, yeah, I can see you losing your salvation. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And we'll look at that. And God, Paul put that in there because he knew. People are going to say, well, what about Israel? They were God's people. God rejected them. No, he didn't. So a lot of Jews who were never really Jews, never really saved, right? Just because they had the blood of Abraham in their veins didn't mean they had the faith of Abraham in their hearts. He's going to talk about that. So, you know, you think about, well, I know a person, they lost their salvation. No, you probably know a person who never had salvation. But if they really are saved at all, they're saved forever, they'll come back. Or if they do die without repenting, They'll go into the presence of the Lord because they're saved by grace. And the Bible says many will be ashamed at his appearing. But they're still saved. Anyway. And then the sixth section we'll call application. So condemnation, justification, sanctification, restoration, then application, which is the practical demonstration of God's righteousness. I love this section. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 15, verse 13 I'm telling you, chapter 12 is one of the greatest practical sections of how, about how a Christian should live their life. You'll find anywhere in the New Testament. And then finally, we have the conclusion, the greetings, and the benediction, chapter 15, verse 14 through the end of the book. All right, if I didn't get to, chapter, to verse 1, you would no doubt be upset with me. So... Chapter 1, and let me just say this, we are about to embark on a journey through a book. I know some of you think, well, you just get on with it. But we're about to embark on a journey through a book, listen, that's as deep as an ocean with divine truth. Folks, it's going to challenge us, it's going to teach us, it's going to mature us, but most of all, it's going to forever change us. As somebody has said, it's time to leave the waiting pool of our Christianity. And that doesn't apply to all God's people. I'm not saying every one of you here or those watching online, you're in the, in the waiting pool of your Christianity. But there are a lot of Christians, especially in these last days, that are very much content in hanging out in the shallow part of the pool and never getting into the deeper things of God. This book will force you, unless you just stop coming and stop reading it, it's going to force you into, well, into the deep end of the pool. If the pool is God's truth, and the shallow part is for the babies in Christ, and the deeper part is for those who are mature and want to plumb the depths of God's truths set forth in his word. Um, well, the book of Romans is the deep end of the pool. And it's time we get out of the shallow, the waiting pool, and begin to plumb the, de plumb the depths of God's unfathomable truths, his riches, set forth in the book of Romans. All right, verse 1. And we'll only get to verse 1, so I'm just going to let you know that. <laughs> we'll probably go faster starting next time, but I'm not making any promises. It's a good chance Jesus will be back a thousand years before we ever get done with the book of Romans. Anyways, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now, folks, realize, Paul was writing to a church he had not founded and had not yet visited. 
So he spends a few verses introducing himself to these folks. He's first of all said that he called himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The word translated bondservant is doulos, doulos. And it's a word that literally and always means slave, slave. Some believe in the earlier translations of the New Testament because slavery was such a powerful issue going on that they kind of shied away from using the correct translation of doulos just to kind of soften the language. From what I understand, the, the word bondservant doesn't even appear in the Bible. All right? But bond slave could be used. Bond slave. Because that's a designation of a particular kind of slave. You say, what kind? A voluntary slave. You don't have to turn to it, but Exodus 21 sheds light on what is going on here. I'll read Exodus 21, verse 2, where God said to his people under the law, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year uh, he shall go free and pay nothing. If, however, he goes on to say in verses 5 to 6, at the end of the six years, if this slave who was now um, paid his debt, and was now being ready to be set free, if this slave said something to the effect, I like it here. I want to become your permanent slave. Then the master would take him to the doorpost of the house and drive an awl or a nail through his right earlobe into the doorpost, symbolically pinning this person to the house. The master would then place an earring in that ear, signifying he was now a doulas, a slave by choice for life, a voluntary slave. That's why bond slave is used because it doesn't speak of just any slave. It speaks of a person who was a free man who voluntarily put themselves into slavery to a master. Now, guys... All the New Testament writers loved that idea. And they all called themselves, as well as every true Christian, we should always refer to ourselves as the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. All the writers in the New Testament, you know, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, Peter, a bond slave of Christ, all of them, they loved the idea of being free men at one time and yet giving themselves over um, to the greatest master in the universe, Jesus Christ, right? Guys, it's a, it's a wise decision and a wise person who gives themselves fully to the Lord as his bond slave. You say, but I love my freedom. You don't have freedom. Apart from Christ, you have no freedom. You think you're free. But the devil owns you. He controls you. There's a lot of paradoxes in the Christian life. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Be the lowliest servant of all, right? You want to live? you got to die, right? I mean, all these paradoxes. You want true freedom? You have to become a slave. See, we know what this means. The world thinks we're nuts. And that's fine. That's fine. But we know what the Bible teaches. I mean, you cannot make a wiser decision. You want true freedom? Paul says, look, <laughs> I know true freedom. I'm free in Christ. I mean, unbelievers, they think they're free. They think I'm in bondage because I can't party and do a smoke dope and, and run around and, and, and having you know, sex with everybody. That's not freedom. That's bondage. That's bondage. I have the freedom not to sin. I don't have to sin. I don't want to sin. Do I ever sin? Of course I do. I'm human. But I don't want to sin. I don't pursue sin. I, I've never known true freedom like I know it now in Christ. The freedom not to sin. It's not that I can't go to a party. You can't have any fun. You can't go to a 
parties I go to. I don't want to go to the parties you go to. But I could. All things are lawful for me in Christ. I'm saved by grace. But Paul said, I will not be brought under, under the bondage to, of, of anything. If by exercising my freedom, I give away my freedom and become a slave to smoking or drinking or partying or sexual promiscuity, I may think I'm free, but I'm in the worst bondage you can imagine. It's a bondage where you think you're free, but you're actually a slave. See, I know I'm a slave. I'm a slave to my Savior, but he set me free. He set me free. I, I just, you, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't received Christ here tonight or watching online, you could know what I'm talking about if you gave your heart to Jesus and, and, and bowed the knee to him and said, Lord, I believe who you are, what you did. Please come into my heart. Please take over. I, I, I've made a mess of my life. I don't want to be in control. Anymore. I want you to take control. And he will honor that prayer. He will come in. He will take his seat on the throne of your heart and become your king. And you will never know greater freedom if Jesus rules over your heart. It's a wise decision to become the Lord's bond slave because he takes excellent care of those committed to him. Their lives are filled with purpose and focus and listen their hearts with peace and joy. You know, Bob Dylan, that great theologian, <laughs> was right when he sang, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Paul, like Joshua, many centuries before him, he made the right decision and chose to serve the Lord. Remember what Joshua said? You want to serve the gods of the Amorites on this side of the Jordan? You go right ahead. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. you got to serve somebody. Either you're going to serve the world, the flesh, the devil, or the Lord Jesus Christ. That's up to you. I know who I want to serve. And my family, I know whom we want to serve, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says in verse 1 that he was an apostle. An apostle. The word means one who was sent by authority with a commission. And it was applied in that day, guys, to the representatives of the emperor or the emissaries of a king. And one of the requirements for an apostle is recorded in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 and 2. One of the requirements for an apostle uh, was the experience of seeing the risen Christ. It had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And Paul saw the risen Christ when he was on the road to Damascus, as, as was recorded in Acts 9, verses 1 to 9, where he was converted. He actually was converted there on the road to Damascus as Jesus appeared to him and engaged him in conversation. And it was after his conversion that Jesus called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, Paul also received from the Lord Jesus Christ, as he men made mention to in different epistles, uh, he received from Jesus divine revelations that Jesus told him to go to the churches and share. So he was literally one who was sent forth by the king on a mission, with a, with a commission, the gospel, right? But at the end of verse 1, he says that he was separated to the gospel as a preacher. And um, when he was a Jewish rabbi, Paul was separated as a Pharisee to the laws and traditions of Judaism. You know what Pharisee means? One who was separated. He was, separ he was so zealous for Judaism that he gave his life to this religion. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. Didn't God ordain Judaism? You make it sound like a cult. Yes, God ordained it. But God had said, even from the time Moses came down from the mountain. Uh, carrying the tablets of the law, his face shining, and the, Moses put a veil on. Paul tells us later, it was not because people were, couldn't see the brightness was shining so much. It was because the glory was already fading. The idea was that the old covenant, the one that Moses brought down from Sinai, was not going to be forever. Jeremiah 31, God says, there's coming a day when I'm, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt, that covenant which they broke. 
I'm going to put my laws in their hearts, and so on and so forth, okay? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 or 34. So Paul at one time was a separated one, a Pharisee, separated to the laws and traditions of Judaism. But when he yielded to Christ, well, he was separated to the gospel of God. And guys, gospel means good news, as you well know. In other words, the gospel is good news from God. Good news from God. Let me wind this down by saying this. All you have to do is turn on the TV, log on to the Internet, or pick up a newspaper to see that all around us the news is bad and getting worse. All this bad news collectively is only the result of what's going on in people's lives individually. People in our society, and we know this as Christians, but, but they're clueless, many of them. People in our society and around the world are in the grip of a terrible power. A power that, unbeknownst to many of them, is demonic. Is demonic. And is gripping and holding them in bondage deep within their nature. And of course, I'm speaking of their fallen nature, which they inherited from Adam. That power is pushing them every day toward self-destruction and ultimately toward eternal destruction in hell. The driving force behind this power, as I just said, is the devil. It's obvious. But he is working through their fallen nature to lead them into sin. And guys, sin is what makes for all the bad news that we see in our lives individually and in society collectively. And even the little bits of good news we see once in a while are nothing more than commas and an endless flow of bad news. And really, all of that sets the stage for the opening statement of Paul in Romans chapter 1. Let me put it this way. If you've ever purchased a diamond, before the jeweler will take it out, he or she first lays out a piece, a piece of black velvet on the counter and then places the diamond on the black velvet. Why? What's well, obvious? For the purpose of contrast, right? The black velvet makes the diamond pop. It makes it sparkle, right? It, it demonstrates the true beauty of the, the diamond, right? And guys, this in, es in essence is what Paul is doing here. Before laying out the beautiful spiritual diamond known as the gospel, he first lays out the blackness of sin. And against the backdrop of human depravity, hopelessness, and despair, Paul announces to the human race, I have good news. It's good news from God. Folks, that's what the book of Romans is all about. For there to be really good news, there has to be the revelation of the bad news. Look around you. This is the bad news. In our society, in our culture, you have sin becoming more and more pervasive, prevalent, pernicious. I mean, whatever you want to say. And people look around and think, well, maybe science has some good news. Or maybe our politicians will make things right. That is also a lie from the devil. The only good news that can counteract, offset, I don't know, all the bad news of sin in our society is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And again, that's what the book of Romans is all about. But from the way the world reacts to God's good news, goodness, you'd think we were preaching bad news. And you know why? It's because unbelievers are so twisted in their thinking. Why is that? Because they have been brought under the control of the devil, who Jesus said in John 8, 44, is the father of all lies when he speaks. He is only speaking his native language. And he gets into the head, doesn't he? I have said it before, let me say it again. All spiritual warfare, you think people think, well, say, define spiritual warfare. Uh, casting demons out. Well, that's a small part of spiritual warfare. I don't know, some churches cast demons out every service. I mean, but um, 
the real spiritual warfare is for control of your thinking. It's a war for what enters your head and you know conquers your thinking, takes captive your thoughts, right? As a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. So is he. That's why the New Testament says, look, when you get saved, you've got to immediately start unbrainwashing yourself. For all the years before you got saved, the devil has been pumping incessantly into our minds his godless philosophies, ideologies, uh, anti-God, anti-Christian, anti-Bible philosophies, and all of it. And the minute you get saved is the minute you have to, to, to unbrainwash yourself. How do you do that? By getting into the Word. And as Paul said, you know, in Romans 12, he said, um, don't be conformed any longer to this world's way of thinking. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? That's why we come to Bible study. That's why we read the Word. We want to fill our minds with God's... The Word of God are the thoughts of God. When you read a book, you are actually becoming one in your thinking with the author. That's why if you read garbage, garbage in, garbage out. But if you read God's Word, all of it is true, all of it is precious, all of it is praiseworthy. As you read it, you begin to think the thoughts of God. And guess what happens? The thoughts of the enemy get pushed out slowly but surely. You are transformed more and more into a new person. A person that thinks like God, and if you think like God, you'll act as God wants you to act. Guys, we Christians have good news given to us by God, and don't ever let the devil tell you otherwise. Because he'll try to get you to sour on this book. He'll try to get you to think it's it, it's not real. I've tried Christianity and it didn't work for me. What are you, buying a used car? You go around, kick the tires, you think, okay, it's pretty good. You don't, you don't judge the word based on um, the outcome. You judge the word of God because God says it's true. I believe it's God's word. I receive it into my heart. And then things happen, right? Um, as, as Jesus said what, to Thomas, you know, um, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. It's only a matter of time. God's word is going to do what God promised. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantly many times. But we have been given good news from God. And the devil will try his best to tell you it's not good news, it's a lie. My, I've got good news, the devil tries to tell people. You know? Smoke this, drink that, do this, do that. It's all a lie from the father of lies. And as we go through the book of Romans, we, are, we will see the incomprehensible riches of this good news that God has given to us to share it with the world. We'll see the incomprehensible riches of this good news unfold before our eyes. So come back as we study this incredible book together. And the reason I wanted to spend a little time at the beginning talking about how this book has transformed some of the greatest Christians the church has ever seen, because we often don't realize what we have in our laps. You want testimonies? They're there. I'm not saying that they're not real. I mean, you know, we can't, you know, you can't rely on your feelings. You can't uh, think, well, uh, if this works for me the way it worked for them. Look, you just give yourself to, to the Lord Jesus. Feed on his word. And he will begin to work within you through his spirit to transform you from the inside out. And you will see that you're not the same person. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. And that's what we need to understand. God's word is living and powerful. It changes lives. But you have to be in it. You have to read it. You have to, you have to feed on it. As a baby in Christ, approach it like milk. Because it will feed you and you will grow thereby, as Peter told us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible book. If I only had one book that I could have from your entire word, if I was allowed only one, I would absolutely choose the book of Romans. There is everything we need for life and godliness in this book. 
And so, Lord, as we begin to study it, may your spirit be our teacher. And may you, Lord, enlighten our understanding to the things you have placed here for our learning, that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would change, that we would just, Lord, be the, the um, children of God that you desire us to be. We thank you. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in this incredible book. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.